Again, our sermon scripture comes from Galatians, the first chapter, the 11th through the 24th verse. And when you have it, please stand. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism among, beyond many of my own age, and among my people was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God, what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about the value of a life, the value of a life. I've been paying attention to the news lately, and it's been both interesting and disheartening. Uh, the Internet has afforded a lot of people who would probably never, ever come in contact with these other type of people to have a forum to, to speak to each other, and people who have violently opposed opinions find themselves in the same space, so to speak. Uh, people who are far-left liberals in the same room as Tea Party Republicans. People who are for all kinds of inclusion are in the same room with some of the most racist and separatist people you could ever meet. People who don't care about anything and people who care about everything all end up in the same area arguing with each other, particularly the comment section of some of these articles that I read online. Uh, the most recent one I read was this morning, uh, our local one of our local news affiliates published something about a law that was most recently passed in my hometown of Indianapolis, Indiana. They have uh, passed a rule that they are a law, rather, not a rule, a law that if it gets above 80 degrees continuously, if you have a dog outside, you have to bring that dog inside to a quote-unquote, temperature-controlled environment. Now, that's saying a lot about Indiana. I know we're in Texas right now, 
because, uh, uh, you know, 80, it's 80 in February down here. You know, it's 80 people still trying to break out leather and fur coats, and then, but 80 in Indianapolis is a heat wave. 80 in Indianapolis is a, a temperature advisory. It, it does not get that hot up there. And subsequently, just as 80 people break out the furs here, when it is 60 in Indiana, people are trying to barbecue. It's just different places for different times. But anyway, what I noticed in the article were people arguing about it because there are people whose dogs live outside. They get them a dog house or they tie them uh, up or they break off a certain part of the yard and that's where their dogs live and they give them water and take them to the vet and that's fine. And so these people in the articles, uh, particularly in the comments section, did not understand why they would need to bring a dog inside. And then you had people who were violently opposed to that line of thinking and felt that if the dog needed to stay outside, that these people had no business owning a dog. They were trying to compare human lives to dog lives. And I, I've had inside dogs and I've had outside dogs. I'm partial to dogs in general, but I don't think leaving a dog outside is inhumane, if you must know how I feel about that, that position. You have some small little dogs that don't need to be outside, and you have other little dogs that probably could stay outside and love it and, and thrive in that environment. It all depends, in my mind, on the make of the dog, what breed it is. There are inside dogs and there are outside dogs. But these people were arguing over it, and people were bringing up these examples. I, my husband works in a factory outside 10 to 12 hours a day, and somebody would say, well, that's your husband, and he chooses to do that, and if you think a dog should be out that long, you don't deserve a dog. And so they went back and forth and back and forth, and nobody really ever wins on the Internet, but they argued about the value of the life of a human versus the life of a dog. Most recently, again, uh, the Cincinnati Zoo Still reading these articles, there was a 400-pound gorilla and a, a toddler fell into the enclosure with the gorilla. And unfortunately, the disaster response team decided that the best course of action was to lethally handle that gorilla. And you have people there who are arguing over the value of the life of the gorilla. And there are people who are arguing over the value of the life of the child. And then there are even other people that argue over the value of the life of the parents. The father's rap sheet is brought up and talking about his criminal past as if he is less than a human being because he made some mistakes and went to jail. They're arguing on the, the parenting skills of him and calling him an absentee father when he was actually just at work. But people have already made their decisions about said parent. They argue over the parenting skills of the mother. They argue over the, the, the life. There are people there that are arguing over the life of the gorilla and saying that gorillas and animals in general should not be in zoos. That's a horrible thing for animals, to be enclosed and have people come, quote-unquote, gawk at them. They argue over the value of the life. It means something to them, and so they fight for that value. Not just animals, people as well. Just up the road in Waco, Texas, we've just recently had a scandal at Baylor University where there were massive cover-ups 
because young women were being sexually assaulted by athletes and because particularly the football team is a multi-million dollar entity for any college or university, it was covered up. They argue over the value of the cover-up. Why would you not value the life of a young woman whose life will be forever changed by this situation? And some people were even retaliated against, and they may kick them out of school if they tried to file rape charges against these people. Why? Because these football teams, and I played football, and not only did I play football, I worked in the budget department when I was at Prairie View. Not that something like that uh, happened at Prairie View while I was there, but I learned working in the budget department of this school that even if a football team is horrible, they still make hundreds of thousands upon millions of dollars for a university. Working in the budget office and working and writing some business plans for other schools, I learned you ever wonder why some school gets to play a, a, a D2 school for a, a, a homecoming or a senior night or some sort of game because that big school pays that little school to come play them. And sometimes that's the only way that little school can afford to have scholarships because a big state-run university will give them $500,000 for their football team to come get trounced by 70 points. But then you've got scholarships for the entire team going in the next year. And so these, these sports make money for these institutions. And because they make money for these institutions, they will do anything to keep that money coming in. And you can't keep that money coming in if your players are getting arrested. So they have a, they've placed a value on the athlete and placed a lesser value on the sexual assault victim. There are debates regarding the passing of Muhammad Ali. There are people that are still angry at Muhammad Ali because he did not serve in the Vietnam War. So even as this man just passed away less than a handful of days ago, people are still calling him a draft dodger and questioning everything he did for civil rights because he did not fight in the Vietnam War. They place no value <laughs> on what he's done. They place no value on his life. Or they do place a value on his life, and it's just not the same amount of value that they have for other things. These are all arguments that boil down to what you think of a person. What you think of a person, what you value of a person is how you treat them. Not only when they're face to face, but when they're away. There is a value placed upon their lives. And that is what Paul is addressing here in the last half of this first chapter in the text. He is addressing the value as I said last week, there was a competing gospel going on in Galatia. He had come and talked about Jesus being crucified, died, and dead, and raised from the dead for your sins. And if you believed in him, you would be saved. But somebody came behind him and said, that's not enough. You need to do this, this, and this before you can truly be saved. Or else you're not as good as we are. And so Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia to set everything straight. 
He was defending what he had said before because the scholars say that those were preaching a rival gospel that challenged Paul's credentials. And in order to get these people to practice a new gospel, they had to say whatever Paul had said wasn't quite right. And again, I bring up again, like I said last week, it is interesting that this was coming from inside. These weren't outside people. These were so-called Christians trying to tear down another Christian. I know we don't do that now. That never happens. There's no such thing as mess in the church. The church folk don't argue about nothing now. I'm just talking about the text. And Galatia was not a city or a town, but it was an entire region. So this was a vast amount of space that he was trying to, to get things straight at. So he had a revelation. Let the church say revelation. revelation. Uh, he said it in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He said it in first, verse 1. And then he comes back and says it again in verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I tired. Rather, I received it by revelation by Jesus Christ. I can relate to Paul in this situation. Having to repeat yourself over and over again, having to figure out a way how to say something one way and then say it again so that the people who weren't listening the first time could get it. And sometimes you have to figure out how to say it again and again and again, and you have to repeat yourself. And there are people that say all the time they only really have one sermon. They just have a bunch of different ways to get there because they have to say it over and over again. And Paul had to say it over and over again to the church of Galatia, this is not my doing. I didn't make this up. This is not something I just pulled out of thin air. This is revelation from Jesus Christ and God himself. It's not compiled by any human authority, region, or reasoning, or logic. And it was not communicated to him by anybody else other than Jesus Christ. If man made it, man could unmake it. And we see based on how we're here today on Sunday morning in Galveston, Texas, in a church, that this, this unmanned, this thing that was not man-made because it has lasted this long. Man-made stuff falls apart. No matter how well it's engineered, no matter how well it's built, no matter how well you test it, if it's made by man, it's going to fall apart. And something I learned when I looked at the text is right in verse 11, even though he has this issue, and even though he's had to list his credentials, he doesn't list his credentials in any other letter. It's just Paul an apostle when he introduces himself. But here, he has to say where he got his apostleship from. So that implies that the scholar said that his credentials were questioned. And even though these very same people are questioning his credentials, the people inside the church trying to undo what he's done, he still calls them brothers and sisters. He still calls them family. And he calls them family because he realizes that what he's doing is not just for himself. Uh, the, the text literally translates into, when he says that the gospel I preached, it literally translates into the gospel that was gospeled or proclaimed by me. Paul is saying that he is the instrument not the agent. 
uh, an instrument is a tool or an implement, especially one for delicate or scientific work. It's a measuring device used to gauge the level, position, speed, et cetera, or something, especially sometimes in, in, in motor or vehicle or aircraft. It's also to equip with measuring instruments. That is an instrument. An agent is a person who acts on behalf of another. A person who takes an active role and produces a desired effect. That happens to be a problem, I think, with a lot of us in the church, particularly those in the pulpit. We think that we are agents when we are really just instruments. We think that we are the emissaries when we are really just the utensils. We think that we're the go-between when all we are are a tool. God can use anybody that he wants to do anything that he wants to do. We just happen to do it this way, but even though that we have to, we happen rather to do it this way does not make this position any more powerful or any more special than anything else. Paul is making a point of indicating that his authority does not come from humans. It derives from God. And because this authority comes from the divine, Paul is making sure in this verse that he's not giving, giving, the, he's not giving anybody the, the impression that he, the proclaimer, is more important than what is proclaimed. We are just tools here to bring out the gospel, to tell people about Jesus Christ. I like the way the message puts these first two verses. It says, know this. I am most emphatic here, friends. This great message I delivered to you is not mere human optimism. I didn't receive it through the traditions, and I wasn't taught it in some school. I got it straight from God. I received the message directly from Jesus Christ. It's an apocalypse, which is a revelation. Apocalypse is not an end time. It is an unveiling. It is a, it's a beginning of sorts. God was revealed to Paul through Jesus Christ. And there is no better place to get something than straight from the source. Working in video editing, there is something we always want to do when we are recording video. We want straight from the source. We want the sound to come straight from the source. We want the video to come straight from the source. We don't have to want to have to make copies over and over again because every time you make a copy, it loses a generation of quality. Paul met Jesus himself. He didn't have to meet Jesus from somebody else who met it from somebody else who met it from somebody else who met it from somebody else. He met Jesus on his own. He experienced Jesus for himself. And so he knew what he had to say was true because he experienced it from him for himself. Whenever you want the best of anything, you go straight to the source. The purer it is, the more quality is, is, is deemed. We do it with jewelry, we do it with perfume, we do it with everything that we work with. We want the pure quality. 
we don't want the watered down copy. And so we have this revelation that he had, and from the revelation we go to review. Let the church say review. Paul goes on to talk about his pre-Christian activities or his pre-conversion activities. He was cruel towards Christianity. He was cruel towards what they would have called the way back then. He didn't tiptoe about it. He walked right in and caused havoc to the church. And then when he was converted, he didn't tiptoe about that either. Just as hard as he went against the faith, he went that hard, that much more for the faith. So we ought not tiptoe into anything. We ought not think that because we are Christians, we ought to be soft about something. Being meek is not being, being weak. When something is meek, that means it still has its strength. It's just learned to get its strength under control. A meek horse is just as wild and just as strong as it was beforehand, but it's learned not to buck on everything. And I like how it says in verse 13 that it does not specify exactly what Paul did. Paul could have walked through every church he ran into and beat people up. Paul could have walked in every place that he went and persecuted Christians, but that's not the point. It don't, the, only, the point is, is it's only what he did. It's kind of like when people get in trouble. Well, I only stole two candy bars, so I shouldn't be punished as hard as somebody that stole five. We don't want to get caught up in the details. Growing up, getting caught up in the details only meant I got a worse whooping than before. The fact of the matter is, is that he did it. And, and they talk about it not only in this, but they talk about it in Acts 8. But he did it. And that's what matters. And so he was cruel towards Christians and he was committed to Judaism, a very religious Jew. He followed all the laws and customs. Uh, the word that is used for Judaism in the Greek is only used twice in the New Testament during this time and it's for, 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 for what Paul is talking about. And it's not technically totally religious. Uh, Judaism was more than a religion during that time, but, and, and really during this time, it's, it's not just about the religion, it was also about the culture. And what he was trying to say in the term that he was trying to use it in was a cultural, both a cultural and a competitive context. This was a competition to Paul, and he was winning. He had all the credentials. Not only did he have all the credentials, but he was getting them younger than people around him. So he was winning. And he was committed to Judaism, but just as he was committed to Judaism, he had a conversion. Let the church say conversion. conversion. He was chosen by God. Paul was chosen before he was born. And the son was revealed to him. If that's not prevenient grace, I don't know what it is. God looking out for him. God wanting him to come into the fold before he even understood what was going on. And the bad part about it, and I guess the good part about it as well, is he was a credentialed Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was, he was well into the law. He thought he knew everything. But there was still something he didn't know. 
So it doesn't matter how many letters you can put behind your name, how many pieces of paper made out of lambskin you have up on the wall, what kind of credentials you have, what your W-2 looks like. There's still something for us all to learn. We ought to be able to humble ourselves, for the word says that he who humbles himself will be exalted. I remember in Proverbs it says it's much better to be down low and be told to be brought up than to be up and be told to go back down. He was chosen by God. Set him apart before he was born and called him through his grace. And I like that the text says he was called through his grace. One translation calls it sheer generosity. God wants us before we even know that he wants us. They say that the mystery is not that we seek God, but that God seeks us. Who is man that he is mindful of us? All we have to do is respond. All we have to do is respond. God is calling us. We just have to answer. And then he will reveal himself to us. And then he goes after he has, he has had his conversion and is chosen by God. He goes off, he goes to, from Arabia to Damascus. And I like that he did that as well because he's doing, he's placed a value on what has happened, but he's also not allowing other people to place a value on him. See, this conversion after seeing Jesus, the, 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 uh, the expected thing that he would have had to do is go to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was where all those people that walked with Jesus were at. Jesus is gone and ascended into heaven. And the majority of the disciples, with the exception of Thomas, spent their time still in these same areas. So if you wanted to get in, if you wanted to be valued, if you wanted what you did to be uh, recognized... You had to go see the big wigs. You had to let them say that that was okay. But the first thing he does is I'm not going to any human for what I've got going on. I'm going back to God. He went to God and not any other human being. He didn't go down there to get anointed and tapped on the head to be the next person. He went back to God. Not saying that God was just in Arabia and Damascus, but I'm saying in general, he did not go to Jerusalem. He did not go to get his, 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 his work validated. He knew what he was called to do and he went about doing it and he didn't wait on anybody else's approval. And then after he had gotten right with God, then he went to Jerusalem. That's three years later and he met with Peter and James. He met with them after consulting with God. So anytime we want to get any value, we ought not worry about the value of what everybody else thinks. What matters is what God thinks. And I would argue even after that, what matters is what you think about yourself. We spend a lot of time trying to impress people with money we don't have, buying things we can't afford to impress people who don't like us anyway. I'm learning and have learned and continue to learn that just because somebody dapped you up and smiles in your face don't mean they care anything about what's going on in your life. 
They may even sit there and nod and say, well, I'm going to pray for you, brother. But that don't mean anything. What they really think about you, they may not never say in front of you. But it matters not what they think. It matters what God thinks. God told me that I'm the apple of his eye. God told me that I'm the head and not the tail. God told me that I'm the righteousness of God. God told me that I'm above and shall never be beneath. God told me that I'll be blessed in my coming and my going. Blessed in the city and the field. God told me that. God told me that my enemies will be under my feet. That's what matters to me. Not what somebody else thought. Not somebody caring how I dress. Not somebody caring how much money I make. Not somebody caring where I got my education from. Not somebody caring whether or not I got an education at all. It matters what God thinks of me. And so he thought about what God thinks. Not what the church thought. Not what the city folk thought. Not even what his parents thought. He cared about what God thought and what God thought is what brought him through. And so he went on after he'd met with Peter, a.k.a. Cephas, and James, which was Jesus' brother. He went on to continue the work that God had set him out to do. And he went on to Syria and Sicilia where people who did not know him got a chance to learn about the Lord. That is what we ought to be doing as Christians. We can't keep going everywhere Everybody already knows us. We would not be able to make disciples if all we do is hop and grab people from other churches. Hmm. We got to preach the word to the people who may not have heard it or may not care for the way it was preached before. You are always somebody's perception of a Christian. You're the only Bible that some people will read. You're the only sermon that some people will hear. But we got to be able to get out and meet those people and not just stay cooped up in these four walls expecting the people to come out from among them. We have to go out. And so these people in Syria and Sicilia did not know him. But what they knew is that he was the man that was formally persecuting them. Them as in those who followed Jesus was now proclaiming the word, preaching the faith. The man who once persecuted us is now preaching the very message he tried to destroy. He was not caught up in his past and they weren't caught up in his past either. The gospel did not change. The people did. That word that is used is also proclaim and is also evangelism. Faith is interchangeable with proclaiming. In in terms of some of the the translations, it's preaching the faith, it's proclaiming the faith, it's preaching the gospel. It's not just about believing when they use it in this time, there is some action along with it. Ah, so you believe in Jesus, now you need to tell some people about it. It's one thing just to believe and to have the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen, but you got to be able to take that out to the people. 
The faith is interchangeable, and it's more than just believing. You got to tell somebody about it. It does no good just sitting up inside of you. And I like that they say that, that, that the one who was now persecuting them is now proclaiming the faith. He wasn't caught up in his past. He wasn't caught up in what he had done before, and they weren't caught up in what he was done before. Or if they were caught up in what he was done before, I can't say I know what they were thinking at that time. But if they were caught up in what Paul had done before, they did not allow, Paul rather did not allow that to stop him. He kept putting one foot in front of the other. He kept preaching the gospel. And that's why we look at almost two-thirds of the New Testament written by him. He went out and decided to preach this message to those who were not born in the Jewish faith. Because that's what it was limited to preach before then was just those who were limited, or not limited, but those who were born Jewish. So you had to be born Jewish in order to accept Jesus because he was the Jewish Messiah. But Paul came around and said, no, this salvation is for everybody. Not just your mama and your daddy and your bloodline and your own family reunion. This is for everybody. And it doesn't matter what you've done before. It doesn't matter how low you feel or how low you think you have sunk. God can come and get you. And because that, they gave praise because of that. It didn't matter where you started. It mattered where you finished. Uh, Abraham lied and Sarah lied, laughed at God's pro- uh, promises. Moses stuttered and was a murderer. David's armor didn't fit. John Mark was rejected by Paul. Timothy had ulcers. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Amos' only training was a school of fig tree pruning. David had an affair. Solomon was too rich. David was too young. Peter was afraid of death and denied him. Lazarus was dead. John was self-righteous. Paul was, a, I mean, Paul was also a murderer. And, and, and Miriam was a gossip. And Jonah ran from God. But it don't matter where you start. It matters where you finish. Because if I look back over my life, I know for a fact that I don't deserve God's grace and mercy. If I look back over last year, I know I don't deserve God's grace and mercy. If I look back over last week, I know I don't deserve it. If I look back over last night... I know I don't deserve God's grace and mercy, but he saw fit to get on the cross and die for my sins and your sins and your sins. And that's not where the story ended. He got up with all power in his hand and he's coming back again in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. The doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.